0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap Using encryption is a good thing, but it's just the start We'll outline some important steps you can take to protect your privacy online Plus how one developer managed to completely own the Uber app And then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more On this week's episode of TechSnap Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 205 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 5th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, yeah, it rocks. It's powered by ScaleEngine. Go over to ScaleEngine.com and check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan.
1: Hey Chris, everybody! Thanks for watching.
0: Hello, Alan from the future. Yes, uh, we are recording on the fifth uh, for release next week because uh, Alan is at Asia BSD. This Con.
1: time it will be four in the morning on Friday, and I will be asleep.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Actually, I have, I, I already have a project plan for that Thursday when there's no tech snap, which very rarely happens, right? Uh, I'm going to clean out the studio garage because we've some of the equipment we've received we've gotten too many boxes. So I'll be back breaking down boxes while you're doing something way cooler, hanging out at Asia. Well, I'll be be sleeping. <laughs> well, during that particular time, it's yeah. an
1: eleven-hour time difference. But this
0: is one of your favorite ones, isn't it? Yes, yeah. uh, Tokyo
1: is very interesting.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. Oh, you're going to get so much great food, and you're going to find new gadgets. I'm
1: kind of jealous. Well, and I'm just looking forward to information about packaging the base system for freebsd uh, the ZFS improvements to replication and stuff uh, just lots of interesting stuff just I mean.
0: gonna dig into it all there huh
1: yep plus That'd we're be. gonna hopefully get some more interviews and lots of fun stuff
0: well uh, we have got some great stories to break down this week so while we're talking about Asia BSDcon why don't we mention our first sponsor because guess yes. what they're gonna be there that's right they're yep. gonna in fact they're I a have... big sponsor of the
1: conference yes and we're gonna have a bunch of people there.
0: Yeah, they always do. So go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to learn more about the company that takes the time to really invest in the community and hires a lot of those people that work on some amazing things. And ixsystems will build a solution specific to your needs. And get started at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Look at some of those rigs powered by those awesome Intel processors, and you're going to really get a hands-on experience with what I think is some of the best customer service in the business. Alan, you've been buying rigs for them for a long time. You agree with that statement, right?
1: Yes, and you know, uh, for a long time I hadn't used the support, so I didn't know how much different it <laughs> you didn't was. Didn't need it. <laughs> uh, and then I had a hard drive die. Yeah. And around the same time, I had one die at a machine that I didn't buy from them. And then the difference in the process of getting the replacement drive, and the difference in the timeline in getting the replacement drive, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just I think the biggest one was just they understand that the server might not be at your shipping and billing address, and, and you know the fact that they're like oh. Right, that server's in a data center in a different country than you are. So we'll make that happen for you.
0: Uh, <clears throat> I, I I completely think it's one of these experiences when you go through and you go, well, I'll never do it the other way again. Uh, it yeah. really is like that. It's
1: yeah. I'm just not going to buy hardware from anyone else. Yep. Uh, I think the biggest one is just how hard I kick myself now from before because I just assumed they would be expensive. turns out it, they're... I don't even know how, but it was cheaper than when I was buying the raw hardware myself from a, a not to mention, computer wholesaler and putting it together myself.
0: Not to mention and the time savings. and counting time. Yeah. counting my time. Yes. Yeah. And, my time. It and was the expertise pool that you better. get to pull from with IX, yeah. which is just and, invaluable. You know, I was like, I don't know anything about SAS
1: Multipath. You will have to tell me what to do. And they're like, oh, no problem. Here, watch this. Yeah.
0: And the other thing, too, is somebody who's looked at a lot of systems for a long time, uh, when you come across an IX system – there, it, there is obvious indications that a lot of thought and care went into the design and build of that system. I know when I first opened up my FreeNAS Mini and I looked inside for the first time and I saw just the way they'd managed the cables, but also the small touches like that tiny little USB nu- nugget that they used to to make it so that way I could reflash and have all of the storage on my array available for actual storage and i will have to slice some of it off for the OS and the way the, f- the firmware updates worked and it's just so slick and so smooth. And I thought, you know... They never even knew I was going to see that, and they still took the extra time to make it beautiful, to make it to do a really good job. And it's like that, top to bottom. ixsystemscom slash TechSnap. Go check them out. Tell them the TechSnap show sent you. And if you're at Asia BSD Can uh, or Con, uh, tell them that uh, you heard about it here on the show. Give them a high five. Check out some of their goods. Yes,
1: be awesome. And uh, speaking of that, a little bit actually, um, this week's episode of BSD Now will probably be out by the time you're watching this. uh we have a discussion segment about the history of PCBSD and how IX got involved and in, uh and made it is made it into what it is now and uh kind of the plans for the future now that uh PCBSD is is over the years managed to get to parity with Linux as far as having all the tools for configuring your Wi-Fi and, and all the little things that you might need to do, you know, uh managing your sound from different apps and so on. Uh, now it's caught up to Linux, how it's actually going to surpass Linux in features and, and do some really interesting stuff.
0: Check it out. That'll be on, what, 80? Is that episode 80? Yep. Uh,
1: yeah, it's episode 80. And we also have a great interview there as well.
0: Uh, now, Alan, I'm not worried. I'm honey-a-badger about security these days because I know that encryption has got my back. It's going to keep me safe from any woes that I might be out there in the cyber minefield of technology. There's
1: a couple of different considerations here. So, okay. you know, while using encryption is a good thing, it hides the fact it hides whatever you're communicating. It doesn't hide the fact that you are communicating. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, if they're advanced adversaries, then it doesn't stop, you know, if you're a journalist or an activist protesting against a government or something, you know, if you're in a hostile country and you're a journalist and you're reporting on them, they don't really care what it is that you're reporting. They just care that you are reporting
0: it. And so encryption isn't necessarily hiding that. Right. And well, we've seen in the NSA revelations how valuable metadata is, truly. Exactly. And, you know, we've
1: also seen that Tor isn't necessarily good enough. Right? The FBI has identified people even when they were using Tor and tracked them down and arrested them. So, you know, just using Tor isn't necessarily good enough either. Mm. And so there's a great article over here at Alternet. Uh, they also have, um, it's mostly just a, a reference to a bunch of other resources, but it's a really good thing to to read through, especially if you're into this type of thing. Uh, but it's operational security for activists and journalists. And it kind of talks about the different oh. considerations you have to consider, right? Yeah. The only protection against a communication system is to avoid using it, right? If you don't want your phone calls to be tapped, don't make phone calls.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Wow. Uh, but, and they talk about a bunch of different things. But one of them is anti-forensics, right? It's all about reducing the quantity and quality of the information the adversaries acquire about you. Right. In other words, if spies succeed in breaching into your computer, then give them as little useful information as possible. one, one way to achieve this is through compartmentalization, right? Keeping things separate, uh, so that if they do get it, they get the one thing, sure. not all the things. Right. right? right. Uh, you know, and we've seen that technique honed by intelligence agencies like the KGB and the Mossad and so on. Uh, you know, especially uh, important. Like to mention the you know the only way to be secure against your comms being intercepted is not to use comms, is that really important? Government secrets are still passed by a courier, right? They send an actual person to physically carry the message, yeah. uh,
0: Because if they transmit it, yeah,
1: it can at least be tracked. If nothing else, crypto one hundred percent.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, like you say, if nothing else, it can be tracked, and that's good enough. Exactly, or bad enough. Uh,
1: whereas you know, if if the government has a courier that goes back and forth once a day every day, you can't tell whether they're carrying a secret message that day or not. Right. Uh, and then they talk more about you know, your cell phone is basically a giant tracking beacon. Uh, <laughs> so maybe you want to be like some of the people from WikiLeaks and just not even have one. Or if you do need one, then you know you have to. Maybe you have your regular cell phone and uh, you know a secure cell phone. And then there's a bunch of considerations there about, you know, not using them at the same time and not letting them uh create a pattern. But you know, avoid patterns like geographic or chronological. So if you have a separate secure cell phone you're gonna do for your secret things, then don't always use it in the same place or at the same time. Right? If they can predict when you're gonna turn it on and make a call, if you do it at mm-hmm. five o'clock every mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. then then they can be set up and waiting for you. Or if mm-hmm. you go to a certain same hiding spot every time, then they can have their inner their um Stingray machine set up at that location whereas if they don't know where you're going to go it's much harder for them to be set up with a Stingray Uh, you know so relocate to new spots during the course of the phone call right keep moving and watching for people following you and so on and you know if you can get a range of them and they can't keep up then all of a sudden you're less uh, insecure you know, stay in motion. Also, phone calls should be kept as short as possible so that the amount of data collected by the surveillance equipment uh, during the call's duration is minimized and this will make it more difficult for spies to make accurate predictions about what's going on or where you're going to be or or what how the crypto worked or whatever. They say, also be careful about carrying additional mobile devices like a, a tablet or a second cell phone. Uh, this creates the risk that the peripheral hardware may undermine anonymity by correlation. right? So if they see you if they see the two phones in the same place a bunch then they realize that oh you know there's this there's this secure phone that we're trying to track but it's off a lot of the time We can't yeah. track it but it always seems to be in the same place is this not secure cell phone so if we just track that cell phone wherever it is it's probably where the other one is too right and i also mentioned you know if you have to buy extra uh, a phone to have as your second phone or whatever pay for it with cash, right? Mm. Credit card transactions are a big red flag. You know, even if you, you know, you think about it, it's like, well, it's my credit card and it's from the states and I'm not hiding from the Americans, it's not a big deal. It's like, yes, but, you know, those credit card transactions also be monitoring at the store in Eastern Europe where you bought the phone or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, I suppose so.
1: Uh, you know, in Japan, if you wanna, even if you want to just rent a phone while you're there, you have to fill out a bunch of documents because they have very strict rules knowing about who has what phone. Oh, really? Like in Japan, I don't think it's even possible to get a burner phone in Japan. They're very picky. Um, I could be wrong on that. Just stuff I was reading because I rented a, a reserved a Wi-Fi mobile hotspot thing to carry around with me in Japan because my cell phone company tries to charge me $10 a megabyte for data in Japan. So it made more sense to just rent a mobile hotspot. Anyway, uh, they say the spies somehow capture a secure cell phone and are able to siphon data off of it. One uh, potential countermeasure is to flood the device with false information, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a phone book on the device, mm-hmm. if it's got a thousand names in it and only two of them are real, then that makes it much harder for them to figure out which ones are the real ones, right? Or, you know, if you're using a, an Android ROM or something, you could have something where it's constantly filling the call log with fake information so that. If they get a hold of the phone, they can't tell which calls actually happen very mm-hmm, easily. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, they could probably go back to the carrier and see what's going on. But, you know, you can do a bunch of things that at least slow them down and give you time to get away or whatever. Uh, they also say, skillful application of the technique uh, can lead spies on a goose chase. Uh, they say, uh, when Edward Snowden was fleeing Hong Kong, he intentionally bought a plane ticket to India with his own credit card in an effort to throw the pursuers off. I remember of that. Going to India. That was very clever. Yeah. They also mentioned another time, um, you know, when he was typing his password, he would hide under a blanket, apparently, uh, <laughs> hmm. uh, so that he couldn't be filmed or, you know, a camera couldn't see what he was typing on his keyboard. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe you can just cover your fingers like you do at the, the pin pad at the yeah. bank machine or yeah. whatever, but, yeah. you know, there are actual considerations of this stuff. Yeah. But they say, uh, in summary, expect your security tools to fail, so you have to compartmentalize and have contingencies and backup plans and so on uh you know i have to contain the damage you have to assume that something bad's going to happen so you have to plan for that right rather than just assuming this is good crypto i'll be fine because while the crypto may stand up the application may not
0: hmm.
1: right and apply the core tenets of anti-forensics uh, don't put blind faith in technology and focus your resources on maintaining uh rigorous procedures because when things get dicey, it'll be your training and preparation that keep you secure, not the technology.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that is very true. That's a good, That was a good find, Alan. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yep. I, uh, <clears throat> I guess the, uh, the, the moral of the story is, is don't use the system unless uh, you're okay with being tracked. Even if it's encrypted, you're still going to be tracked. Well, if you're really worried about being tracked, you have to be very, very careful. Uh, All right, Alan. Well, let's stop right here, take a quick moment, and thank our next sponsor, and that is Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get the special TechSnap sauce and also support the TechSnap program. Why, Ting? Because Ting is mobile that makes sense. No contracts. You just pay for what you use, a flat $6 per month. Yeah, seriously flat $6 per month. Plus, Ting has the most crazy badass dashboard you've ever seen from any cell phone company. Uh, this screenshot isn't like some CG screenshot of what their dashboard is like. It's Their actual Ting dashboard is really this badass. It's, it's, super, it's a super sweet system. And the nice thing is when you have multiple devices, it doesn't get crazy at all. It's still really easy to manage everything. You can create high usage alerts. You can go in there and name your devices. So I have Chris's Nexus 5, Rekai's HTC One in there. So I can see, oh my gosh, look at all this data. Rekai's not really Rekai. Does great. Uh, but it really is a great system, and they mirror that with apps on your device. So managing your Ting count is really straightforward. And so you just pay for your usage, really, really low rates. It's very easy. And you don't have to worry about any contracts. And there's a lot of great ways to take advantage of Ting. So think about this, a service that has no contract, and it's a flat $6. That could be extremely useful if you have a tablet sitting around that has an open GSM or CDMA uh, SIM slot you could take advantage and bring internet to that tablet for very little overhead, and that makes it way more useful. Uh, For example, up on the Ting site right now, if you go to techsnap.ting.com and then go shop, they have the Ting GSM SIM card for $9. Plus, going to techsnap.ting.com will give you a $25 service credit. Okay, So you're going to get $25 worth of pay-what-you-use data for free. That's going to last you probably more than a couple of months on Ting. All you need to do is get a $9 SIM, and then you'll get our $25 discount. You, whatever you put that SIM card in, is going to get $25 worth of free data. When you go to techsnap.ting.com for $9, there's no contract. There's no termination fee. In fact, you can just go into their awesome dashboard and just turn it off when you don't want it for a little while. This is a great way to get some mobile access to something that's been sitting around. Or maybe you've got like uh, my friend Chase has a really slick new security setup. And the, some of the devices have Ting GSM SIMs in them to do uh, SMS text warnings and uh, offload uh, JPEG and uh, movie images to uh, to, an to an off-site storage when it needs to. And then he doesn't want to have to have a contract for that. He just, when it uses it, he, that's when he pays for it. It's really easy. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Check him out. Also, for those of you who are iPhone fans, you can get the iPhone 5 for $252 on Ting. No contract. unlocked techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. Okay, Alan, so uh, we've teased this last week, but uh, everybody knows Uber now. And Uber is a super complex app that allows for a lot of dynamic pricing and conditions to be changed. Uh, so it would make sense that uh, it probably has a few hidden uh, tricks up its sleeve. And I guess... Well, yeah,
1: I guess the, when you mentioned the how dynamic it is, because of the way cell phone apps work... When you want to change the app, you have to submit it to the App Store at Apple and Google and so on and wait for them to approve it and so on. Uh, so when apps want to add new functionality, that becomes kind of cumbersome. So a lot of apps are now designed to be dynamic in that the kind of, even the display that you end up getting is kind of generated and controlled by the server that you connect to. Mm-hmm. And so um, that way Uber can just make a change on their, on their back end and the new functionality shows up in the app without having to have resubmit it to the right. Apple Store. To
0: the, to, I have an app that I use that the developer on the server can change a parameter, and the order of the settings menu in my app will readjust. Yeah. Icons right. can change so around everything. they have like a, an
1: API that says, give me all the settings, and then it draws that or whatever. So um, here, uh, Nathan Mock, who's an iOS engineer, uh, doesn't work at Apple, but builds uh, iPhone apps, uh, he was debugging an app that he's building, and he accidentally uh, got a closer <laughs> glimpse into the uh, Uber's iOS app internals than he had intended. Oh, sure. He was using a tool called Charles, which is a, a way to intercept the traffic from the phone uh, to monitor and analyze the traffic between the client and the uh, server for his app. But it happened to pick up the Uber stuff when he fired up Uber. Oh, sure. He was able to uh, create, uh, basically, to do kind of like the Superfish type of um, SSL interception. So Charles would intercept the app and present a fake certificate and then proxy the connection back to the actual Uber uh, uh, And then if server, Charles is doing that, Charles gets the data. And see all the data back and forth, and that's how you debug your app.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you can break SSL with Charles, essentially.
1: Uh, if the phone accepts it. So I think uh, when you set it up, you tell your phone to trust the certificate from Charles. Again. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he says this effectively allowed him to view the requests in plain text that were going back and forth between uh, the Uber app and the Uber web server. Uh, and he noticed that there was uh, one request being made every five seconds, which honestly seems a bit aggressive and a waste of your data plan. But. Yeah, and battery life. Mm-hmm. One particular request of interest was used by Uber to receive and communicate the rider location, driver availability, application configuration settings, and more. Uh, while looking at it, he saw that there was actually a... a Parameter in there called is admin, and it was set to false. <laughs> so one of the things Charles can do is uh, rewrite rules where it will change a certain bit of text in the messages as it go back and forth. So he changed all the is admin equals false to is admin equals true uh, in his rewrite rule. So now as it's going back and forth, the message is getting changed slightly. Uh, so now when he fired up the Uber app, he stumbled. He had an employee settings screen. If he went into the about screen. That had all these options to, you know, create a fake writer or fake driver, or do it, all kinds of things that you wouldn't normally be able to do, right? Because the Uber app is very dynamic, the client's architecture allows you to customize the UI to get, uh, so that if you're in a certain geographic area, you see a different UI entirely. Or, you know, if you're a writer versus a driver and so on, uh, or even change how it looks on a different device, right? Depending how big your screen is, maybe that's how many columns will show up or whatever, you know, And it also allows them to, uh, you know, they've experimented with doing stuff other than uh, trips, right? You know, they have to uh, deliver kittens or deliver food or mm-hmm. offer rides in helicopters with Uber mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, all that. And, you know, we've seen them change prices and so on, all without having to resubmit their application to the App Store. So it's common functionality. But the thing is that it seems that the Uber app doesn't really do much verification. It just trusts that what it's getting back is actually from the real Uber server when it's not necessarily going to be. Uh, you know, if a malicious developer wanted to get a forbidden feature or function past the review team at Apple, they could do something like this as well. So maybe Apple needs to crack down on it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, By the saying So as you can see, your traffic is not 100% safe, and anyone can inspect your requests and responses, even when they're over HTTPS. Uh, especially if you know on the end device they can trick it. It seems like the Uber app should be verifying the SSL certificate and being like, "Hey, this isn't a real." You think sign so, work. right? But if it's doing that through the operating system's mechanism or whatever, I suppose. Then so. um, if you've if you've gone and installed the. Uh, a Charles certificate into your phone, then that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I suppose so.
1: Uh, the bigger question is could you use this to present a fake certificate to someone's phone where you hadn't installed something special on their phone and be able to intercept something? Uh, but anyway. Um, so it definitely seems like Uber should do a little bit more to make sure they're talking to the real Uber. Yeah, because they're kind of making a lot of assumptions. Flag there. Yeah. Uh, more importantly is does this allow you to does, does the uh, API in the app not do enough verification where you might be able to actually push things into the system as if you were an employee when you're not?
0: Right. All right. Uh, and the other thing I saw that was interesting there is like it also allowed you to change what server the uh, client was connecting to from production to something else. I wonder what kind of fun you could yeah. have with that. That might be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose as these uh, as as this is this is what like you can understand though from Uber's standpoint, they needed to do something because every time they want to make a small change, they can't wait around for Apple to to yeah. review it for a week or two yeah, or three. Especially
1: when they want to do something, uh, you know, if it's like trend jacking or something, they yeah, wanna, yeah, uh, hop on some hype, they can't wait yeah. three or four weeks for Apple to approve it,
0: right? Or they want to run something for three days and they want to remove it from the app, and you know, maybe yeah. They, yeah. So they got to do something. So I'm not da- I'm not dogging them for doing that. But what it seems to be is that essentially is that they just they look for that. They don't
1: have the level of defensive programming required to not necessarily just trust everything we get from the server.
0: Right. It's like if you just get that is admin equals yes, then hmm, I'm good.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's that specifically is the thing we're complaining about.
0: Interesting though, because uh, uh, growing pains, I suppose they're early. They're they're yep. a new company. Uh, but all right.
1: uh, you know, we obviously couldn't go without mentioning the other part too. Uber recently. Uh, Mm. What did I write there?
0: They had the database breach to oh. information of yes. uh, 50,000 drivers. I was reading what I had
1: written and trying to figure out what I actually meant. Oh, uh-huh. Suffered. Uber recently suffered, not suggered, <laughs> <laughs> a data breach and uh, leaked information about 50,000 of their drivers. Yeah. Uh-huh. The disturbing part about this is that the breach occurred in May 13th of 2014. Yay. Uber didn't discover it until September oh. of 2014. Oh. And they didn't announce it until February 27th of 2015. Uh-oh. So, you know, if uh, that new, was it 30 or 90 days uh, to disclose data breach law came out, they would be well in violation of that. But the worst one is just that it took them so long to even find out that it happened. Uh, and I, I quoted this just because it's like a practically a meme in tech snap now. Uber says it will offer free one-year membership to experience Protect My Idea Laird system.
0: (laughs) Good, good, good. Oh, that solves everything. Yes. Uh, And so
1: what's interesting is uh, Ars has an article here talking about uh, some of the more detail that's come out since then. Mm. Uh, It turns out Uber might have accidentally stored sensitive database keys and API keys on a public (laughs) GitHub page. no. And that's how the attackers got into their database. No. So now um, uh, Uber is subpoenaing GitHub to get the IP addresses of everyone who looked at that page. Because they have the IP addresses they think are belong to the attacker. And they want to see if that same IP address viewed the page with the keys on it. You know, I really suspect that if someone broke into their API and did these queries that they didn't do it from their own computer. Or without you know some VPNs or some Tor or something, but uh, it's interesting that they're basically trying to put the blame on GitHub. You know, it it was their fault they posted the keys on GitHub, but now they're they're saying you know GitHub has to help them find out who accessed it, and it's like, well, if I'm GitHub, I probably don't have logs of every page view going back to May of. 2014.
0: Uh, or you have some serious storage and a real nice search yeah. system too. And also a, a,
1: a privacy policy that allows us to just give this out to anybody for no reason. <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess that too. <laughs> yeah, that's a little uh, naive I suppose. Uh, wow. Well, yeah, like I said, Uber I think is a company that's going to be interesting to follow because they're, uh, they're they're moving really fast and mistakes like this are going to come up from time to yeah,
1: time. Yeah, and you know, they obviously have their own legal battles with... Uh, Oh, yeah. Have on and, which, yeah, which keeps them
0: distracted as well. Um,
1: yeah, but it, yeah, it's hard to say which way it's supposed to go there. you know, I can kind of see the argument from both sides. Yeah. The innovation and stuff is good, but you can't just be like, oh, we're a technology company and we're, we're innovating, so we don't have to follow any of the uh, existing laws now, and prefer They prefer if,
0: they so so if you call it uh, innovative disruption. Got to give ah, disruption. They're
1: disrupting the industry. It's like, yeah. sure, but that doesn't mean you don't have to have insurance.
0: Well, there's that. All right. Uh, Good story, though. Thank you, Alan. Uh, I'll tell you about something that I know about, DigitalOcean. I know about DigitalOcean. I'd like you to know about them, too. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean, and you'll get a $10 credit. In fact, one of the things I think is great about DigitalOcean is you can just go apply it and you get an account balance. So uh, I have, like, four PayPal accounts. And one of them I have attached to my Steam account. And that's the one where I have a couple extra dollars and sometimes it's not enough to buy a Steam game or something. I just apply it to my DigitalOcean balance and it just keeps it running. It's really slick. So when you use SnapOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. You apply that to your DigitalOcean account. You can try out their $5 rig for free for two months. Why? Why? It's really, truly a simple cloud hosting provider, and they are dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans are only $5 a month. So the $10 credit gets you two months for free. It gets you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of freaking transfer. And I'll tell you, data centers, they got them. They got them in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London, multiple data centers and locations, and they're hot a good looking data centers but what really is hot is that interface it really is something it's simple Yet very powerful. It gives you access to things like obviously the creation of the droplets, destruction of the droplets, backing them up, snapshot management, DNS management. You get full feature DNS management. Allows you to easily manage your domains. You can do servers from existing snapshots. I love doing that as sort of a template and start to get me started right, and going yeah, really quick. Snapshot it and then clone that. Oh and yeah, buddy. The machine out of it. Oh yeah, that it's makes like
1: it, forking your computer or your server.
0: It makes it so much faster right. to get going. Uh, and also another big time saver is uh, their one-click installs for a lot of great software packages like GitLab and Docker. Uh, And, you know, I talk about it a lot, but you really should go see it for yourself. Go check out DigitalOcean's community section. Uh, They have up right now some of their highlighted uh, uh, community articles, uh, Apache versus Nginx, practical considerations, how to set up Node.js on Ubuntu 14.04, using systemctl to manage systemd. And then they also have all these great tutorials, like how to configure Nginx as a reverse proxy. Well, how many times have we talked about that? Lots. And on DigitalOcean with their private networking, that's seriously something you should consider because you could save yourself a lot of money and have a good, secure, fast setup. Uh, how to install secure PHP My Admin on your droplet if you need to use PHP My Admin for MySQL. Uh, Log Stash on CentOS 7. And then they have all these projects that integrate with their API. There's so much good stuff. There's lots and lots and lots of projects out there. Really good apps for your mobile device. Uh, it's it's insane. There's so much stuff you can take yep. advantage of, and you get started for free for two months when you use the promo code SNAPOcean. That's a $10 credit. Try out the $5 rig for free. Go deploy a free BSD instance. Go deploy a Core OS instance. All really cool technologies you can play with on super fast hardware connected to Tier 1 bandwidth. DigitalOcean.com, SNAPOcean. You guys, it's a lot of fun. Go check them out. Snap Ocean. And you know, normally I would plug uh, BSD Now right now and just say, hey, go check it out because uh – you know, this is a good spot to do a download. Obviously, still the case. Alan just mentioned they have a great BSD now uh, that sounds like uh, one not to miss. I'll give mm-hmm. a plug uh, because we've had a couple of uh, BSD developers also on Women's Tech Radio. We've also had some iX Systems folks mm-hmm. on uh, Women's Tech Radio. And they just uh, probably by this time this episode come out, came out, episode 17. Episode 16, though, uh, just came out the week we're recording, featured an Intel developer who's creating neuro-controlled robots. Ooh. yeah, pretty That's neat fancy. so that was episode 16 of women 's Tech Radio. Go check out the new show on the Jupiter Broadcast network hosted by my wife Angela and Paige, who is a developer herself and has lots of interesting insights. Uh, Alan, with the news all done, it means it's time for the tech snap feedback. sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the jupiter broadcasting website or even better so starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com and our first email today Alan, I love it. This one this one from Simon is like fully decked out with diagrams including a stick figure. And he says, "Hello guys." Oh, love the stick figure. I <laughs> know totally unneeded but awesome. That's Simon. That's Simon right there. Yeah. He says, "I have a question about my iSCSI network. I've got a setup like this." And he shows us a PC going into a 1 gig uh, port and then uh, an ESXi NIC uh, going into a 1 gig port, a NAS NIC going into a 1 gig port. Uh, another ESXi and another NAS NIC. Uh, yeah, so basically his ESXi machine VLANs.
1: and his NAS each have two NICs. One uh, is in the client VLAN, yep. which also includes his PC, and the second one is in a separate VLAN where he's just doing his iSCSI traffic. And he's basically doing this, creating a SAN. And
0: he's doing this on a Cisco uh, SG226. Yeah. So he goes so he says, So both my ESXi and free NAS have two NICs. All of them. Uh, some sort of Intel. The idea is to have a separate gigabit ISCSI network where I can do jumbo frames if I want. This is uh, this one is completely local uh, and without a gateway, and one client network for accessing Sambas and VMs. This works fine. I saturate my PC NIC to NAS NIC. Uh, an ESXi nick easily when I copy files back and forth. However, when I do a file copy to a VM with its disk located on the iSCSI target on the NAS, I get a max 500 megabits. When I check VMware in FreeNAS, they say the same, 500 megabits. Same goes for the file copy from a VM on a local ESXi storage to a VM on the iSCSI data store. Um, he goes on to say a little bit more. He actually even included, look at that, traffic graph snapshots, which mm-hmm. is great. <laughs> so it looks like, uh, yeah, the one is showing... The traffic on his... He says, I know my free NAS can do a lot quicker, so that's not the bottleneck, so what do you guys think it is? And he included some specs here. The FreeNAS rig is uh, pretty good. Re- uh, FreeNAS 9.3. It's cat 6 cabling, 16 right. gigabytes so, of yeah, RAM. Like,
1: so what, if, what he's saying is, if he's copying a file from his desktop machine to the, the NAS over Samba or something, he actually maxes out the whole gigabit. But when he tries to do it over the iSCSI, he's running into... A bottleneck where he's only getting half the speed. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's exactly half, I'm just wondering if there's something... Like on the Switch? Well, no, it's more that is it something where he's actually using a gigabit on the NIC, but is limited? Like, if the routing or something is, is causing the problem? Like, as if the traffic is actually going through the gateway and then back, and so that NIC is actually topping out at... 500 megabits? Yeah, if it has to, to do that. It, yeah, if, it, it, yeah. it if it has to do that, yeah.
0: Uh, uh,
1: although it's not how he's intending to have it set up, so I'm just wondering what's actually happening. It's really hard to debug a problem like this without being able to, you know, stick your eyes in the different positions So what and kind see of tools happening.
0: could we kind of give him to kind of play around with maybe on the FreeBSD side or something? Is there anything there like he could uh, throw on the FreeNAS the f- box? Yeah. Uh, if, if there's a way to install one.
1: It. One is to run GSTAT. Uh, which lets you look at the um, the disks and make sure they're not maxed out or something. Uh, the biggest one is, I'm wondering, you know, if, if basically the problem is that if his eyes could be that's topping out at that speed, that it might actually just be um, the disk because of the way it's reading and writing, that it might just not be able to do it, but what that about, doesn't seem very likely.
0: Is there another type of transfer he could set up as a test over that same network, maybe set something else yes, up? Um, it won't be included in the
1: free net, so you would have to like create... FreeBSD jail on the FreeNAS and run it in there, but there's a program called iperf. Oh, sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly and it allows you mean. to just test network performance. Yeah, and then if you just did the iperf over the iSCSI VLAN nick or whatever, and make sure uh, that has a good chance to uh, let you see to confirm that the second nick is actually going to be able to push that traffic. Um, sometimes it depends on the setup, uh, but. My first uh, instinct was that, you know, one of the NICs was on board and one was in a PCI slot or something. Sure. And I've actually seen that where the on board one, because it's actually connected over PCIe, can do the gigabit. Yeah. But the PCI one stops out at like 600 megabits.
0: Yeah. Uh, like on a 1X slot or since
1: something. Since they're both uh, i210s, I'm guessing they're both on board built-in PCI Express, so. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a couple of different places you'd want to look, but yeah, it's a... F- so to debug like this, you almost have to be watching while the file copy is happening and try to figure out which is the bottleneck. Uh, it kind of goes back to that uh, benchmarking interview we did with Ben and Greg on BSD Now where it was like, the most important question to ask is always why. So it's like, okay, so it's topping out at 500 megabits, why? And then keep looking into and then, and why is that the limit and why and so on. Um, you know, one thing to try is just switching which NICs are which and see, but uh, oh, yeah, one yeah. interesting one might be to try is mount, uh, make a new iSCSI volume or whatever, and mount it on the PC, and see if you can write to it at a gigabit over mm-hmm. the the client VLAN interface. Yeah, and so on. I like that. Uh, but also, you didn't exactly explain some of the when he was doing the copies. I think one was from the PC to a VM in on the SxI, mm-hmm. uh, and then the other one was I think two VMs that are both on the ESXi, one where the file's on the local storage in the ESX and one where it's trying to write to the iSCSI, in that case, there's, the network traffic's only going to be going in one direction and it seems like it should work properly.
0: I agree. Yeah. Uh,
1: the problem is, I guess, you, you can't get some of the tools that I would normally use to do that on the ESXi or even on the FreeNance because it's an appliance. Although you could probably do it in the jail. like uh, I would use like, Enload to get real-time stats on what's going in and out of each of the NICs. Uh, being that he's got the fairly fancy Cisco switch, one thing you can do is set up a monitor port, uh, where, you know, an extra port on that switch Mm -hmm. there hooked up to a laptop or a PC or something. And it would clone all the traffic going in and out of one of those, uh, ports. And then basically you run Wireshark and you get to see all the traffic that's going into the, the NAS, uh, iSCSI nick and see if there's anything not looking quite right or whatever.
0: There you go. I hope that helps. Because, yeah, that's kind of an ambiguous problem. But I think that's those are good troubleshooting. But, yeah, it, it could
1: be just because of the small uh, block size or something of the iSCSI or what. But normally you should be able to definitely get a gigabit out of your iSCSI. So it's hard to say what's going on there. Just the fact that it's like exactly 500 megabits is kind of suggesting that something might be mm. where the traffic is basically having to be duplicated or copied.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. This next one is kind of like uh, since uh, we're doing a pre-recorded thought. Let's let's use this opportunity to pull behind the curtain, look back there, and answer maybe a question that somebody's had out in the audience. Uh, Next, next Nexel Tux. Nixeltux Tux writes in and says, I was wondering what program do you guys use for the video chat on the show? Is it Skype? And if it is, why? What are the options out there for a good audio-video client for Linux and BSD? And then there is, of course, a pursuing conversation about it. But, Alan, uh, people have wanted to know uh, what we use. I think people think it looks pretty good. Uh, it's, had, it's, it's looked better than it does right now, but it yeah. works.
1: Yeah, uh, you switch the machine to Linux and it doesn't work as well anymore. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That is true. But, I had a so,
0: Hackintosh on there, and yeah. then I didn't change the hardware at all, but I Hackintoshed. I changed from the Hackintosh, and, and I put um, um, Ubuntu Mate Edition on there for me, long-term support. Because we're having some stability issues with the Hackintosh. Mac OS is just locking up a couple times,
1: mm-hmm. or a
0: lot towards the end. Um, but yeah, one of the things is uh, we can't do 16 by 9 video now. Under Linux, just for some reason, yeah. Uh, under with Last, we're using Jitsi. We're going to talk a lot about that on this. Uh, now we tried
1: that one episode of TechSnap and it didn't work. But you guys have uh, fiddled with it some more. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, we ended up just totally like when we first. So we we're going to talk about this on Last a little bit. But when we first rolled it out, we were writing on top of the Google Talk infrastructure, which is not a good idea because that's about to be shut right. down. So uh, and it was as you noticed extremely problematic. So uh, Noah just spun up an XMPP server and an ICE server on um, a DigitalOcean droplet, and now we just bounce. So off now that. does the traffic all have to bounce off of that? Not once droplet? it's established. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, it just Good. bounces the connection off of that first, and then bing bing, and that is a direct connection. And he's able to send me like you know anything. Just, we arbitrarily we just set whatever values we want. It's very buggy. Jitsi is not production ready. Like uh, I, I frequently have to reboot to get the video to work. Uh, sometimes it'll crash. Um, you know, so there's a lot of problems. But it is totally yeah. free. The
1: odd time we have problems with Skype, but generally it does seem to actually work.
0: Yeah, and I, I Skype. Cool. Part of it is we started with Skype
1: because two hundred and eight weeks or two hundred and six weeks ago, they it
0: was what there was. And I would you know? still argue. When Skype is working at its best, it's still the best. Uh, yeah. Jitsi lets you set Opus, and you know you can have high quality codec. But the thing is, is in my opinion, even up against Opus, Skype still sounds better. Yes. Now, if only Skype let me just set the bitrate and yeah. lock it. Yeah.
1: We'd be perfectly happy with that.
0: Yeah. And if I could do sixteen by nine under Linux, I would be much happier. I don't know why that doesn't. And you've had it working under Linux in sixteen by nine in the past. With that previous diagram. versions of Skype have done it. Yeah. Just
1: not 4.3. Yeah. Is, it, is it 4.3 or the fact that it's a different video card now than the other machine?
0: I went back to my machine that did have 16x9 video and it no longer has 16x9 video.
1: I, possible Microsoft is just being like, nah, screw
0: Linux. <laughs> yeah, Jitsi does run inside a JVM. That's what, part of the reasons why it's a bit slow. Uh, but it, it, Jitsi is a multi-network client. And uh, if you set up your own XMPP server, it can handle some really great video. It is, it is a really great system, if you don't mind a little bugginess. With podcasting being so popular, it almost seems like
1: you would think by now somebody would have come up with something. Even based on like, an implementation using the same stuff, just with a... What,
0: what I would love a, is like... I kind remember
1: Google Hangout Studio thing. Yeah. Did that ever actually happen?
0: Mm, I don't know. I think there is some stuff. But what I really would like is something like Jitsi or Skype. Like, we do this call... And in the background, it's recording on your side automatically. You don't have to set anything up. I I control all the parameters. I control the bit rate, all of that. And then when it's done, it uses like some sort of BitTorrent sync or something to send me the files. Like when we hang up, your client just starts transmitting me the local recordings. And then we could have ender, double enders where you could have a local recording and I would have a local recording and we would just match them up be really cool. And it could do the time sync. It would have the time code in there and all that kind of stuff. That's what podcasters need. If there was just a program that just did this and also recorded it and then sent that file to the podcaster. Yeah,
1: or even just if it all got recorded on your end, but each participant's audio was a separate track.
0: Yeah, that'd be nice too. Yeah. So, you know. The nice, thing about, some... the, the nice thing about the local recording is when the guest Skype kind of gets a little wonky. Uh, the local
1: recording will still be perfect.
0: Yeah, so that's nice. But other than that, I would still, I would take separate tracks too. All right, uh, our last question for – actually, it's not even so much a question. I just wanted to show this to you because I thought it was really cool. Uh, Squiggly wrote in. He said, I just wanted to share something cool. I collected old aging rigs some date back to the early 80s, and I get warm, fuzzy feelings when I manage to install a modern OS on them, typically a BSD or Linux. I recently got an iMac G4, you know, the ones with the IBM PowerPC chips in them, the in mint condition. Uh, he said, uh, I removed the Mac OS whatever that was on there and I started installing OpenBSD, which immediately replaced, I immediately then replaced that with FreeBSD 10.1. After 48 hours of compiling Xorg, Fluxbox, and Firefox, uh, I, st- I, w- I was able to get it working. And he says, keep up the awesome work you're doing, and I want to show it to you, because I don't know if you remember these old... I guess part of it is...
1: Yeah, it, it, that'd be PowerPC then, right? Yes. So and I, I don't d- know if you
0: remember these old I'm iMacs, but they're the ones that are these lamp-style Right. So uh lamp style. Yeah, look. You see so it's like a lamp oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the that's it what it's like got. the yeah, it's a it's a version of that IKEA lamp yeah. In that commercial. Yeah, isn't it? so he has that run FreeBSD 10.1 now? Yeah. And the thing is, is that's actually it's aesthetically, I used to I used to have one. I mean, they are aesthetically very I, I was very impressed with the design of this computer. And they're silent too, which is nice. So you just have this really cool and this screen is totally free floating. So the screen comes up or down and you can fold it up or push it up. It's really neat. So to have a modern operating system on there would be a real treat.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if there's an official repository for PowerPC, so you wouldn't have to actually compile that stuff for two days. <laughs> he says, he looks. I think there's a couple of uh, unofficial ones, but I thought PowerPC was." He says, uh,
0: "He says there's no PowerPC package repos out there for him."
1: He ah. says, "I think a couple of people have them, but they're probably so private and probably yeah. not up to date."
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh? It's neat to be able to. It's uh. neat to be able to take because, uh, of course, the. BSD and Linux have, you know, these like things like Fluxbox, which really take very minimal resources. And then <laughs> you can run a modern Firefox install and have a completely up-to-date web browsing computer. If you took that same iMac and installed, what, probably, probably the latest thing it would run is like some very early version of OS X, it wouldn't be able to... Well,
1: PowerP- oh, OS X did support PowerPC for a little while. Yeah,
0: it? but early, right? And so it was like six years ago. And so... <laughs> Uh, you would not be able to get the most modern, secure web browser. You would have to run an old, insecure web browser on that machine. So it's really cool that these free operating systems can, can do that with something that yep. is otherwise a very functional piece of equipment. All right, so we need your emails. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and then choose TechSnap from the drop-down, and send your emails into the show. We want them. Uh, and uh, you can also do the subreddit techsnap.reddit.com we'll be back live next week and answering your questions so now is a better time than ever to get them into us Mm -hmm. because we've gone through our inbox but with the feedback segment all done I mean it's time for the TechSnap Roundup Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our subreddit over at TechSnap... White. Yeah, TechSnap.reddit.com. I was about to give the old address, TechSnap.reddit.com. And our first Roundup story sounds like it came right out of the movies. Iranian hackers breach a U.S. casino, says the U.S. <laughs> what do you have? any 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 info on this one, Ellen?
1: Uh, no, I didn't have time to read the story. That's no, why I was in the roundup. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, so the, uh, James Clapper was, uh, to be an interview, this is what I know, uh, and he said this was a damaging attack on the Sands Las Vegas Corporation in 2014. He mentioned it while testifying, uh, during the Senate Armed Services Committee this week. So we don't really know much more than that. Um, the attack has made headlines because it was said to be linked to Iran. A destructive mm-hmm. cyber attack is what he called it. That's what we know. Destructive it's, there's pretty much There's pretty much nothing else to me. it. There's pretty much no other meat deeds to it. Yes.
1: I'm sure they lost some money.
0: Hey, Alan, great news for you. Nginx has detailed their supports for HTTP2. I'm sure you're stoked.
1: No. <laughs> I'm not a fan of http I know. And I, was honestly, teasing, there is I was teasing you. I was teasing you. Oh, really? Saying, yeah. They're like, uh, you know, we understand this is going to be the standard or whatever, but- whatever. Uh, It'll be next year before it's ready. (laughs) Even though they have current support for Speedy, uh, some of the differences and basically, Speedy was just a module kind of tacked on to Nginx, whereas support for HTTP2 is basically going to require them to change the way the web server works quite a bit.
0: Nearly 95% of the websites that use Speedy were using Nginx. Yes. Uh, And the other 5% were run by Google. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess they were all in on... uh... Speedy then.
1: Uh, well, they were the only ones that had Speedy, but they're not that interested in in getting it. Okay. Ah, uh, asked the chat room asked why I don't like HTTP two. It's mostly that that it doesn't really solve any problems. It's basically just the industry adopting Google's way of doing it, not actually having come up with a good standard that actually solves the problems. Hmm. It, it fixes a couple things and deals with like pipelining and so on, but it doesn't really actually solve the privacy problem or the security problem or
0: it's too much of a half solution
1: yeah uh and basically mostly the standards process just broke down and just became well we have this thing from google and nobody can agree on a different one so we'll just go with that
0: that's disappointing
1: it seems like it's like how about we wait a little longer and actually come up with a real solution
0: yeah all right you ready for the next one yep Okay, our next roundup story. I love this full, full, uh, full, uh, full screen Facebook ad. Uh, this this next story comes from uh, Fusion.net. This guy's light bulb performed a denial of service attack on his entire smart house. <laughs> Look at that! They have this great animation in the article where you can see the lights flipping on and off. Yes. Uh, I think this is this cool. uh, in two thousand nine.
1: Uh, Raúl Rojas, uh, a computer science professor at the Free University of Berlin, and also the robot soccer team's coach. Uh, built one of Germany's first smart homes. Everything in the house was connected uh, to the internet so that lights, music, television, heating, and cooling could all be turned on and off from afar. Cool. Uh, even the stove, oven, and microwave could be turned off uh, with his computer, which prevented some uh, potential panic attacks about leaving an appliance on after exiting the house. And so on. He uh, said so one of the few things not connected uh, were the locks, obviously. Uh, although uh, automated locks bought in 2009 were still sitting in a drawer waiting to be installed. <laughs> he says, I'm afraid of not being able to open the door. So he hadn't installed it yet. Uh, but apparently there was a problem with some of the light bulbs and it caused uh, problems.
0: Yeah, the computer control systems just kind of went haywire, I guess. huh? Uh, he says, nothing worked. I couldn't turn the lights on or off. It just got stuck. It was like the beach ball of death began for my whole house. <laughs> <laughs> I connected my laptop to the network and looked at the traffic and saw that
1: one unit was sending packets continuously. He realized that his light fixture had burned out and was trying to tell the hub that it needed attention. To do so, it was sending continuous requests uh, that had overloaded the network and caused it to freeze. Uh, it was a classic denial of service attack.
0: Yeah, on, on his, uh, on his so, own yeah. system. The light bulb was just like, change me, change me, yeah. change me. Like, at a, and then the, controls, no then the broken, control apparently. software just loses it. Yeah, and they
1: just couldn't handle the the request rate. It definitely seems like the light bulb only needs to say change me, you know, once every hour, maybe or even ten minutes
0: or something. Not yeah. thousands of times. Because it's not the end of the world if the light bulb goes out. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, let's shift gears and talk about CPUs. I love talking about Intel CPUs. Mm-hmm. They've revealed unlocked, socketed Broadwell CPUs and Core i7 Nux. Oh baby! So the big difference is so. You know, a version of an i7
1: is not a big news. The big news is that it will have the Iris Pro graphics, which are only available with uh, soldered processors before. Yes, that's
0: so good. this
1: is their uh, highest-end graphics uh, stuff that will be available on an i7. Uh, You know, not many i7s usually even have embedded graphics, do they? Well, they have just the real basics graphics. Yeah, only some of the models, right? Oh, i7s? Most i7s rely on you having... Oh, I don't know about i7s. Yeah,
0: maybe not. Hmm.
1: I think, I don't, I'm not sure about the i7s. Uh, I'm pretty sure my i7 doesn't have a video card and that I have to use an external one, but maybe not. Anyway. What a uh, weird world uh, we new live Iris in. The Iris Pro fancy graphics card will now be available on the Broadwell i7s, and they're also announcing an i7 NUC. I think before now, the highest NUC was an i5, right?
0: Yeah, unless you went like with a gigabyte uh, uh, s- right. model. that they've, they've done some custom build ones.
1: Yeah, so they have a, a slower power. Ver- uh, so the socketed i7s, I think, are 64 watts, and the new... Uh NUC soldered ones will be, I think, forty-eight watts or something. Iris I think some of the sets are there. Great, anyway. uh, fancy i7 NUC is uh, pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I mean, we use the NUC. So when we were talking about our uh, our setups, uh, Alan's calling in on a NUC right now. He's on a, yeah. the machine here in the studio. Takes him out. And when a I NUC. when I do BSD now,
1: I'm using a, a NUC here, an i5 one that uh, Chris skypes into, uh, and I do some hackery with analog and digital stuff to get the sound where I want it. Yeah. Um, And then I have another i3 in the living room that I use for my TV. Uh, Currently, mostly out of laziness, I haven't recreated the shots in my Wirecast. So when I pull websites, it's still coming from an old Pentium D in the living room. But the plan is to throw that one into the basement somewhere. And never use it again because it's Pentium D, and pull the shots off the i3 uh, uh, nuc out there. So my show would then consist of my tower and two nucs.
0: Yeah, I just haven't recreated the shots yet. Uh, the i use a i use an i5 nuc at home running Arch as like our home Plex and BitTorrent sync, and mm-hmm. uh, I would definitely I could use an i7 sometimes when we have a couple of uh, transcoding streams going on. That i5 is kind of pushed to the limit right now, so uh, yep. maybe a couple more cores wouldn't wouldn't hurt all right next story on the roundup mysql 5.7 an http an http plugin for mysql what it's official Uh, it's legit uh mysql 5.7
1: looks like it will include an http server built into it
0: that blows Uh, my mind i'm
1: just going to leave that here yeah okay and we're going to talk about the security problems with it sometime in the future okay Okay. i guarantee there will be some what could
0: go wrong what
1: could go wrong Uh, But basically, this provides uh, a JSON interface to access data. So it's basically their competition to no SQL type things. Uh, It has a couple different ways. You can just use it as a key value store and pull out whole JSON documents off the key. Or it has uh, a way to actually just rewrite an SQL statement as a URL and it will execute it. Wow. I could go wrong there. (laughs) Uh, And a couple different things. Uh, the biggest question is how's that how well is that going to scale? Like the web server built into the HTTP, or into the MySQL, is that really going to scale better than, you know, using Nginx in front of it or something? But I think their point was uh, it might help rapid application development, so that instead of writing an app that makes uh, an API call to a PHP script that then connects to the database, when you could just have the API endpoint actually be the database. The question is how do you do strong authentication in that case? Honestly, but.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am actually kind of blown away by this. I mean, I guess I can see the use cases, but yeah. So- I think mostly it
1: was uh, Postgres. has said something like this for a long time. And, you know, there's MongoDB
0: and things like that. Yeah, yeah. All right, our next story in the roundup. Skylight, a window on a shingled disk operation. Now, we've been talking about shingled disk for a little bit. Yeah, so
1: Seagate uh, invented this shingled magnetic recording, which is um, normally on a hard drive you have a read and a write head, and the write head is... Uh, they've both been getting smaller, but the write-head has basically hit the smallest it can be. But the read-head can be smaller. So they decided what they could do to make new really high-capacity drives like 5 and 10 and 12 terabytes was overlap the tracks kind of like uh, shingles on a roof. Uh, the, so when you're reading them, you can read them just fine. When you want to write, though, you have to read all the overlapping bits, pick them up, and then write them back down uh, with the one of them changed and the other one's not. And so these drives have a bit of flash in them to buffer stuff and ah. then keep it all. And, and basically they kind of become almost like a hybrid drive but different. The hybrid stuff is all on the right side instead of the read side and so on. Uh, and so these guys uh, were doing research into them. I forget which university they're from. Uh, and in order to, they wanted to kind of model how they work and be able to tell what algorithms the drive is using for doing the math and so on by just looking at how long it takes to jump from here to here on the drive and stuff. And so to back up their data, what they actually did was drill the hole in the top of the drive <laughs> and put a glass thing so they could see inside of it. And then it captured it with a high-speed camera and watching the head move around and stuff.
0: Whoa, cool. And they have a video. Yeah. Let's see if I, I wonder if I can, uh, wonder if they have uh... The video
1: is just at the top. Oh,
0: okay. He doesn't actually but, show
1: the they, uh, have, they basically did a series of benchmarks and stuff on three emulated SMR drives where they did different algorithms and then two real ones while they were actually watching with the, the high-speed camera of what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. And then be like, oh, this drive matched up with this model and so this is the algorithm that drives using and so on. Hmm. And they kind of did some tests and found that for desktop type use, these uh, will look like to be pretty handy. Uh, But for some server types of use, it probably won't work out very well. Ah, surprise, surprise. Although there are three types of SMR. There's uh, drive managed, where the operating system just thinks it's a regular drive. Mm -hmm. Then there's host managed, where the operating system knows it's an SMR drive and the operating system decides how to do stuff. And then there's kind of a a middle ground one.
0: Hmm.
1: And uh, the talk uh, explains about that a bit too. Uh, There's also attached paper, which might be uh, more useful to... The speaker, at least in the very beginning, is, is struggling a little bit.
0: And it, But he was awarded best paper. So yes. So, paper's probably pretty good.
1: Uh, okay. Well, who wouldn't want to just put a window in a hard drive and capture it with an IP camera and see what's going on? That's, that's an ingenious
0: idea. I love it. Pier 1 declares it the IT department is dead. Long live the IT department. Uh, mostly, this is talking about back in 2005, uh, the IT department
1: consisted of you know, new computers come in, you cable them up, and you go around to each computer and install the software. And if there's an update, you had to go to each computer and install it. And now we kind of have these, you know, provisioning and orchestration frameworks, and it doesn't quite work the same anymore.
0: Yes, that's very and true. And it kind of talks it's about some of a the lot. big
1: changes that have happened in the last 10 years. And You know, obviously their whole bent there is towards you know you can just pay us to do
0: it now. Yeah, they they give a big plug for software as a service uh, or Yeah, yeah.
1: well, they 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 also have infrastructure as a service uh, that they do where they um, uh, if if you want to do software as a service, you can rent machines from them Mm -hmm. and they'll take care of everything that happens at the data center, and then you just take from you know you install the operating system and set up the server and go from there. Uh, or they have one where they manage the servers for you, but that's less useful. And if you're trying to do your own software as a service, probably.
0: But anyway. Okay, our next roundup story comes from the FreeBSD Foundation.
1: Yes. Uh, so they have a FreeBSD from the Trenches series that they've started. Love it. Uh, and it basically it's a war story. So I thought TechSnap loves a war story. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so uh, Glenn Barber, who's the current release engineer, but also on the Cluster Bin team, which is the team of people at FreeBSD that manage uh, their cluster of servers, uh, has an article about building a ZFS foot cannon or how he shot himself in the foot while using ZFS. Hilarious. Uh, it's a pretty good story.
0: Oh my goodness. Uh, I, uh, I can only imagine that there's so many ways you could ruin your life by deleting data.
1: Yeah. Well, in this case, you ended up with two different Z pools with the same name on the same drive and. Basically, it manifested as he rebooted the machine, and then it came back up, and it was empty. And he was like, <laughs>
0: That's, a good one to see. That's a good one to read through. Uh, yep. I'm going to add that to my instant paper queue right now. Alan, I love that. Okay, our last story in the roundup this week. A farming attack targets home router DNS settings. Oh, boy. Talk about seeing this one coming. This one comes from a threat post. Yes,
1: we've kind of talked about this before, but this yeah. is uh, – it actually happening in another case.
0: And this, remember remember what we really kind of said was this makes so much sense that these routers, not only are they getting out of date and they're running very complex operating systems with a lot of remote access features that can be tricked to be turned on. So this is a compounding problem. At the same time, while that trend is happening, the trend where people are using mobile devices, Android, uh, iOS, uh, iPad tablets, you know, they're not they're not on devices like Windows devices that would traditionally get the malware, uh, the, the more traditional route. So now there's even more incentive to take over somebody's Router and alter their DNS because if you alter their DNS, then every single device on the network gets tricked going to the wrong place, regardless of malware, regardless of its Android or iOS or a Mac yeah. or Linux or Windows. And so you take over the router and you get way more stuff. So it's not surprising we're yeah. seeing this coming. So,
1: like in this, uh, I remember the original example we talked about, it was if you got, you send a spam email and if somebody opened it on their iPhone or iPad, it would auto load images. And so you make a bunch of image links in the email that are actually going to the router's website with the default IP and default usernames and passwords. And so you just put like 20 images at the bottom of this email and it would try the 20 most common usernames and passwords on a couple of the common IP addresses like 192.168.0.1 and right, 0 right. and 1.1 and 0.254 and 1.254 all the common ones. Maybe 10.1.10.1 yeah, or
0: whatever.
1: Exactly. And uh Log in with, you know, the passwords, admin, 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 password, admin, link, sys, admin, link or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, you could post data there and, and change the DNS.
0: Yeah. Uh, so uh, not only does Kaspersky watch these pretty closely, they we talked, we've covered some of their coverage back in September on the show. But Proofpoint yesterday reported that uh, also a new range of attacks happening in Brazil – Last time we talked about it, it was also happening in Brazil. Uh, this new range of attacks that they saw yesterday also happened in Brazil. They say the campaign was carried out during a five-week period starting in December when Proofpoint started the phishing messages. Fewer than 100 were, sent, 100 were sent to customers. Exactly the kind of messages you're talking about, Alan, right there in Brazil. Yep. So I don't know. Keep your eye out for that kind of thing. Alan, does that bring us to the end of uh, 205? Yep. Well, I can't wait to hear how uh, Asia BSTCon went for you. Yes. But take some pictures you never take enough pictures and now that you have a nexus i actually so have a phone that can take exactly now, so i will actually try to take a couple of pictures good man
1: i just won't think of it though
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i know that's true but it's always fun to go through them when you're over there and mm-hmm. then i get super jelly like i follow you on facebook and i'm like oh alan and you take pictures of food and i'm jealous it's- i don't uh, i know usually. but people do yes. you could you could and it would make uh, me jealous i'm saying that would be mm-hmm. great i just i want to live I like think the only thing you. i've taken a picture of.
1: <laughs> EuroBSDCon two years ago, I took a picture of the dessert because it was just so amazing.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say something else, Alan. I'm glad you didn't say something else. So we will be back live next week at jblive.tv. Now, the time is all changing because of the time zones, but go to jupiterbroadcasting.com right. slash calendar. The calendar will automatically render it in your local time it should zone.
1: be – it will be 2,000 UTC, but remember that if you're in North America, you're Daily Savings Times will have changed, yes. but if you're in Euro or anywhere else, your you got, time zone won't right. change until
0: after the next episode. Right, but or before it's we have to do George this twice W. A year. Bush ruined. I know, the inter- I know. I, <laughs> know, I hate it. I hate it, and it it has been a mess ever since. It's ruined it for podcasters. It's uh, like but,
1: two weeks uh, at the beginning in the two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall. The right. entire time zones are just
0: and. You might think to yourself, why do they go to so much trouble trying to describe this to us? Because it is awesome when you show up live. You get way more show, like especially today. You get a lot more show today because we just did a double recording session. Uh, but we, you know, in, when we take the breaks and you hear that crazy music here in the studio, we're still chatting with the chat room. We're getting up. We're scratching. We're getting food. We're talking about stuff, fixing stuff. Uh, So it's a good time. And then you also get to help title the show. In fact, chat room, last chance to bang suggest. So we'd love to have you join us live. If you can't, we've got RSS feeds. Go grab one. You get the show automatically every single week, even including torrents, if you'd like to help distribute some of that bandwidth cost. And last but not least, go help make the show better on our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.